Let me introduce you to the, to the rhythm of our church. This is the core of what we believe. We believe three things. This is the story of Scripture. This is what we see happening over and over again. Is that number one, there is hope beyond our brokenness. Casey has shown us this last year and a half of what that looks like, being honest and vulnerable. You're not here because you have your life together. We're here because Jesus puts our life back together. And that the hope we have is a future in which Jesus is transforming us moment by moment, bit by bit. Amen? Amen. So we're not stuck in our old identity of failure, lost one, broken one, wrecked one. That's, that's, that's our old identity. We have a brand new identity in Christ. We are worthy, beloved, chosen, forgiven, enough. That's who we are in Christ. And the journey that we get to go on is to learn how to move from that old identity to that new identity. Amen? Second, we believe that that journey of, of learning who we are in Christ happens as we trust our risen Savior. Trust is that word believe or faith. And, it, and trust requires all of our courage and all of our honesty and all of our presence. And it's a relationship word in which we are connecting with Jesus. We're talking with Jesus. We're listening with Jesus. We're pouring out all of our hopes and our dreams and our wants. And at the exact same time, we're resting in his presence and following his direction. Trust is scary because trust means that you're not in control. Is anybody else a control freak? Like me? Five of you control freaks who are willing to admit that. The rest of you are in denial. That's a river in Egypt, by the way. Third, as we trust Jesus, what's incredible is that he starts using us in totally unexpected ways. Like he starts using us to change other people's lives. And uh, I was talking with a, a friend, Mary, this week, and we were talking about sort of the journey that we have as parents of kids who have been in trouble and the cost that that has on our bodies as parents. And, and Mary kept on saying to me, you know, I'm, I don't want to take more of your time. And I said to her, look, it is such a joy that the great area of pain in my life might be used by God to help you. Amen? Frederick Buechner says that our mission is the intersection between our great, plain, our great pain and the world's great need. That's where you and I find the place of our calling. And so what happens is that as we trust Jesus and as we're honest with where we're at in our life, God starts using us to start to knit, to knit back together the broken fabric of our family, of our community, of our nation. You are ready right now to be used by God to make a difference. You do not have to wait until you're better, until you're healed, until you're perfect, ha, 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 until you have your seminary degree. God wants to use you right now to bring restoration. That's what we believe as a church. So each one of these movements, hope beyond our brokenness, trust in our risen Savior, restoration for our community, has a choice attached with it. Let's read that choice. A disciple is one who walks intentionally with God, choosing to be changed by Jesus, 
choosing to seek Jesus first, and choosing to join Jesus in his resurrection work. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, protect this time. We bind up everything opposed to Christ that would be seeking to interfere with this time. Every, anything opposed to Jesus that would be trying to distract us, having us check a score or what's going on in the news, having us think about something else, putting us to sleep. We just cancel the enemy's plans for this time in Jesus' name. Father, we give you this moment. We give you permission, Holy Spirit, to speak to us. Lord, open the ears of our heart. Open the ears in our heart in which we don't want to hear the hard truth that you have to say to us. Silence and bind up fear or pride or control. Jesus, make room by the power and presence of your Holy Spirit, by the power of your word, by the power of the gospel to transform us. We ask you, Jesus, do the do work in us this morning. And all God's people said. Amen. That's the Aramaic word for I agree. Do you, do you really agree? It's a dangerous prayer. Buckle up. Hold on tight. Here we go. We've been in the book of John. If you missed last week, I want to give you a quick recap about where we are last week because last week's story is tied to this week's story. So Jesus leaves Jerusalem in chapter 2 after he's cleared the temple. It's the Passover holiday. That's springtime. That's Easter time. Passover and Easter always happen in the same week. And the Jewish holiday is Passover. That's the celebration of freedom from, from slavery and freedom for a life working from, with, walking with God. Right? So Jesus leaves Jerusalem. He heads back down to Cana where he... Uh, change water into wine, that'd be about a 90-mile walk north down the mountain. And he's going up uh, there. He stops by Samaria, has the conversation in chapter 4 with the woman at the well in chapter 5, or chapter later in chapter 4, he heads back to Cana. Everybody loves Jesus because he just changed 180 gallons of water into wine. They think this guy's here to party. There, uh, a guy, a royal official, um, hears that Jesus is there. He leaves Capernaum, that's 24 miles away, runs, walks, gets an Uber to Cana, which is in the middle of nowhere, commands Jesus, because he's a royal official and he has power and authority, commands Jesus, come with me, you're going to Cana, you're going to lay hands on my child, because everybody knows that when you touch someone and pray for them, they get heals, healed. And, and Jesus resists and actually confronts this dad because Jesus is way more interested in, in doing something far greater and far deeper than only healing a child. Does he care about healing a child? Absolutely. The boy gets healed. But his will for this family, for this father, is way more than one problem solved. So we ended last week by observing that the royal official trusted Jesus as his Savior only on that walk home. Does that make sense? So Jesus says, go, your boy is healed, and then the royal official has to walk 24 miles home, and it's only there in his struggle, in his doubt, in wondering, is God real? Is Jesus actually who he says he is? Because, you know, only God can just heal someone from afar, right? Like Jesus didn't even say, boy, be healed. 
He didn't even put his hand on the boy. He just said, your son is healed. He declared it. That's something only God can do. And so this royal official is going, who's this Jesus guy? And on the road, he meets his friends from his household, his servants who say, your son is healed. And then the royal official says, what time? And they start putting all the dots together. And that's when he believes that Jesus is his healer and his savior. And then the entire household, seeing this boy healed, seeing this royal official humble himself and receive his, Jesus as his savior, the entire household believes as well. So here's a takeaway from last week. The royal, next slide. The royal official thought his way was the best way, only to discover Jesus' way was the only way to a miracle for his son and for his own heart. Read this with me. Jesus is the way. Let me put it in other words. Read it with me. The royal official thought he was in charge, yet the miracles and his transformation only happened when he was walking, trusting, and having the faith that Jesus was in charge. You picking up what Jesus is putting down? Let me read it again in a different way just so that you get it. The royal official insisted on his plan. Jesus had a better plan, not only for the deep need of this worried father, but the deeper concern our heavenly father had for the salvation of his entire household. One of the things that you and I need to wrestle with in life is that we don't want enough. That what you want for your life is poverty compared to what God wants for you. Now, I'm not talking about financial blessings. That's part of it. But I'm talking about what what you want for your life, the problems that you want God to solve is minuscule compared to what God wants to do in you. The work that God wants to work in you. Here's the deeper truth this morning. Jesus is never just working on your behalf to meet one need. Jesus is working to work in you a healing, a transformation, a hope, and a purpose that will change the course of generations. So today's good. Thank you, Steve. I need that deep voice. Say it again, brother. Yeah, that's right. So today's passage comes right on the heels of this miracle. The royal official's son has just been healed. And, he's, and, then, and then this passage happens right next to the royal official's son being healed for a particular reason. John is in his 70s when he's written the Gospel of John. And like everybody in their 70s, we have enough wis- we finally have enough wisdom and, and intelligence and, and, and experience to actually be able to formulate a coherent thought. Amen? We lose all that when we're in our 80s, but in our 70s, we finally get it right there. Don't worry, no one else has that up until their 70s, so, you know, it's that brief moment of glory, and then it's gone. So let's start reading together this incredible passage in John chapter 5. And at the end of the sermon, I'm going to show you how they're all tied together, okay? Here we go. John chapter 5, verse 1. Read it out loud with me, 
with vigor. Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Near the cheap gate, the pool of Bethesda, with five covered porches. Thank you, April. So, why is Jesus heading back to Jerusalem? Fifty days after Passover is the second major holiday of the Jewish year. And so, do you remember if right over the Passover, that's when the Israelites were freed from slavery, they walk out of Egypt. Do you remember what happens 50 days later in that story? They, yes, Karen, they, they cross the Red Sea. They, Pharaoh's army is defeated. They travel south down the Sinai Peninsula. They end up at a mountain called Mount Sinai. Still has a burnt top to this day because God came down in glory and in fire, revealed himself to all of Israel, and gave Moses the Ten Commandments and the law. They spent nearly... They spent months and months and months around Mount Sinai hearing the law where they learned how to not be a human doing, that's a slave, and learned how to become a human being. So Pentecost is a Greek word, and it means 50th. Pentecost means 50th. So the 50th day after Easter is when they celebrated that the law was given. Now, it's interesting, a little bit of history here, because we understand Pentecost, the 50th day after Easter, that's when the Holy Spirit came, right? That's Acts chapter 2. It says, on the day of Pentecost, right? That's when the Holy Spirit came. And, and so Jeremiah, in chapter 31, verses 33 and 34, has this incredible, God gives Jeremiah this incredible good news. He says this, but this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days. So Israel's in Babylonian captivity. The Iraqis have held them captive. Thank you, April. And, um, and Jerusalem is destroyed. Nebuchadnezzar wins. That's the giant pickle in, um, in VeggieTales, right? You know what I mean? Okay. And so Nebuchadnezzar has, win, has won. And Jeremiah is writing to the exiles. And God says this to Jeremiah, but this is the new covenant I will make with the people of Israel after those days. I will put my instructions, my law, deep within them. And I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God. They will be my people. So on the day that Israel celebrates the law being given, that's the day that that promise in Jeremiah is fulfilled, and the law of God is then written on everyone's heart when the Holy Spirit comes. That your and I's heart is not transformed by our efforts. That you and I have a new heart, a new purpose, a new desire, new appetites, because the Holy Spirit has given you that. Amen. The freedom of the Christian life isn't the attempt to be perfect. The freedom of the Christian life is that you and I get to enjoy God's presence and then He gives us brand new desires that we get to live into. 
I don't have to try and be good. I have to put, I get to do the work of putting myself in God's presence and he makes me good. Amen? Amen. So, Jesus shows up to Jerusalem for the celebration of Pentecost. And there, he goes to the pool of Bethesda that has five covered porches. You're thinking, what does this look like? Um, for years, they had no uh, evidence of this. They thought that John just made it up. And then in the late uh, 1800s, early 1900s, they discovered the pool of Bethesda. Here it is. It's these uh, two squares right next to each other. You can see it says Pool of Bethesda, and there are the five colored port covered porches. So there's one long wall, another long wall, two ends, and then one wall in the middle. And there's two different pools of water. That's the Pool of Bethesda. And what did, um, what did Jesus see when he walked into the Pool of Bethesda? Sorry, John, I skipped a slide. Let's read chapter 5, verse 3. Oh, I messed up, John. There you go. Thank you, sir. Good job. All right. Yay, John Blanchard. Thank you, sir. Let's read this together. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. Okay, now the picture of the pool of Bethesda. So the idea was this. Why are all these people there? Why, why are in these covered porches? Why, are, why is it totally ringed with disabled people living there all the time? Well, it's this really cool thing. The, the waters sometimes would bubble up or they would be disturbed. There would be a wind that would blow over them. And people discovered that if you were the first person into the pool, right, you crawled or rolled or jumped or someone threw you in, you'd be healed. And this happened for years. And who does Jesus see? He sees a guy who's been there for 38 years. Now, how did, how did John know that he's been there for 38 years? Well, everybody knows this guy, right? He's, you know, everybody knows his name. Everybody knows his story, right? He told them, how long have you been there? He's been there, well, I've been here 30 years. I've been here now 35 years. I've been here now 38 years. And he's living there in the hopes that one day God would heal him. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked him, read this with me. Now, if you read this story once and you kind of read it quickly, which is often what we do in Scripture, is Jesus sounds kind of like a jerk here, doesn't he? Well, of course he wants to get well. Are you kidding me? Like, what kind of question is that, Jesus? But Jesus doesn't ask if he wants to be healed. He asks if he wants to be well. And the Greek word that Jesus uses for well is this word, hygis. Say that with me, hygis. It's where we get the word hygiene. Hygis. And hygis means sound, whole, restored, or someone who does not deviate from the truth. And at the service, surface, sure, Jesus is asking this guy if he wants to get restored to wholeness. But why is Jesus asking him this question? Well, 
if you've been sick for a long time, sickness, you know that sickness damages more than just your body. Right? Sometimes you start to believe that you are your diagnosis. You begin to believe that there's no hope, that you're stuck, that your life has ended. And, and maybe the life that you've known actually has ended. April and I, we had to grieve the reality that our oldest son, Jonah, is never going to be what we hoped he was, be, what he was when he was growing in April's womb. I had to grieve the loss of my oldest son, my firstborn son, because the life that I thought that I was going to have with him ended when he had his strokes, and then his seizure, and then his surgery. Now, it doesn't mean that Jonah's life is over. It just means that the life I had planned, the life I had dreamed about, the life I had anticipated is now over. There is a wonderful, incredible, beautiful life that, G that Jonah has, that you have. Part of the work that you and I do in grief is to mourn, the life, the life that we've lost, and receive the good life that Jesus is giving us with our limitations and all. And if you're over the age of 65, you know what that feels like. Amen? Your knees don't work the way they used to. Your back doesn't work the way they used to. Your eyes gave out a long time ago. Your energy is reduced. Well, I'm going to tell you just a little bit. Some of you need to be reminded you're not 35 anymore. Look, um, there's no going back to your old life. Let me say it this way. If we do not grieve the loss of our old life, we will be, we will be unable to receive the new and beautiful and good life that Jesus has for us. That make sense? Um, the Irish men on my dad's side, my dad's side of the family, all look like me. They're glorious, aren't they? Uh, we can gain muscle very quickly. We can gain fat very quickly. Uh, uh, my wife hates me because I can lose weight just by breathing. Right? Like my my body is very malleable, but what's not flexible or malleable about my body is that my joints, like all Irish men in the rock side of the family, my joints are terrible. And so Connor's recovering from a torn labrum, and I had a torn labrum in my right shoulder, and now I have a torn labrum in my right hip. That's your, that's your gasket around your, your joint. And so I'll have surgery on the 24th for that of this month. Don't worry. I, I only work 20 minutes on a Sunday, so I'll, I'll be here for the, the 30th for, for, for Casey's celebration. And uh, then I'll be back to golfing like I do all week. Um, and I don't golf. So, so joint pain is part of being a, a rock man, right? When you're a, when you're a, a rock, you, you have joint pain. And so if Jesus asked my dad before he died, if he said, hey, Dan Rock, do you want to be healed? My dad would have said, does it mean I have to go back to work? Because what my dad did is he took the joint pain that we all have, he applied for disability so that he didn't have to work again. And if Jesus asked him, well, do you want to be well? And my dad said, well, does that mean I have to go back to work? And Jesus said, yeah. 
my dad would have said, no, thank you. See, it's a legitimate question Jesus is asking. Sometimes, sometimes we are more comfortable living in hell because we know the names of the streets. We get familiar with our dysfunctions, with our limitations, because they're predictable. Sometimes it's easier to be angry or resentful or selfish or fearful because it's easier to deal with the mess of living that way. We know how to clean that up. It's easier to be that dysfunctional way and then to clean up the mess. It's easier to do that. That hell is more predictable than it would be to actually deal with the issues that we have in our life and get well. I'm hitting an uncomfortable truth. It's inconvenient, isn't it? So to ask, do you want to be restored? Do you want to be made well? It is not rude. It's a good question. Verse 7. Let's read his response. I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Now, notice his response. Jesus says, do you want to get well? Do you want to get hygiene? And the guy doesn't say yes or no. He says, I can't get healed. No one will help me. I can't get healed. No one will prioritize me. I can't get healed. Others always take it from me. I can't get healed. I'm too slow. I can't get healed. I always miss it. And maybe this guy feels victimized. You, you might, after 38 years of watching other people bring their family members to move into the pool of Bethesda, the waters royal, those people roll into the pool, get healed, then they move out of the pool of Bethesda and go back home, and you're always inches away from being healed, always a moment away from getting exactly what you've always wanted, and yet it doesn't happen. I'd be depressed, would you? I'd talk like this, would you? 38 years is a long time to wait. Evidently, God's healing is not for him. What the man doesn't realize is who he's talking to. That the God of the universe isn't going to just roil up waters in the pool of Bethesda, but the God of the universe is going to meet this man face to face. And this is what Jesus says. Three commands. Jesus told him, stand up. Pick up your mat. Walk. Jesus doesn't mess around. There's no conversation about like, oh, you know, no small talk. No, oh, that must be hard. Or 38 years, wow. Or none of that. Just boom, three commands in short order. Stand up. You're healed. After 38 of not, years of not walking, what are these, what is this man's legs like? What are his feet like? What are his tendons like? What are his muscles like? His legs are absolutely emaciated. They're absolutely devastated. In, in that moment, when Jesus says, stand up, all of a sudden, muscle starts growing. Tendons start lengthening. Bones start getting more defense, uh, dense. Feet start forming into arches. Like he feels it in his hips and in his legs and in his calves and in his toes and in his back. He has strength again. 
He's healed. But this word stand up is way more than just physical. God has met this man face to face. His entire life that he's known, he's down here lying on the mat and everybody else is up here. How does he feel? Less than. And what is Jesus saying to him? That's no longer you. It doesn't matter what's been done to you. You are no longer less than with Jesus. Stand up. Throw your shoulders back. You are on the same level as everyone else. Not greater, not less. You are now have a brand new identity. You are a beloved child of God. You're no longer a beggar. You are a worthy daughter, a chosen son. Amen? You're not ignored or unseen. Stand tall. Be rooted in God's love and healing work for you. Amen? Pick up your mat. Now, this command is not about this dude, like, picking up his sleeping bag. Jesus is not like, and pick up your crap. Like, come on. You know, clean your room. That's not what Jesus is saying to the guy. I mean, it literally is, but that's not why Jesus says what he says. Jesus is telling this man, you no longer live here. Like, the mat is literally this guy's house. It's his address. Third mat on the left, Pool of Bethesda, Jerusalem, Israel. 93433. <laughs> what is Jesus saying? Pick up your mat. You no longer live here. You're not the guy waiting for the miracle anymore. Don't hesitate. Don't second guess. You're not going to beg for scraps or for money anymore. You're healed. You're moving on from this place, and therefore the identity that you had living in this place. You now have a brand new address. We don't know what that is, but it'll be better than the pool of Bethesda. You have a brand new address, just like you have new legs. Move, stand up, pick up your mat. Third thing Jesus says. Jesus says, what does he say? I thought he said figure out the next 25 years of your life before you do anything. Didn't he say plan every detail all the way? Didn't he say have everything figure out? Oh, did he say stand up, pick in your mat, and wait for your emotions to motivate you? Wait till you feel ready. Did he say that? He says that, doesn't he? He doesn't say that. What does he say? Walk. Just walk. Jesus doesn't even tell him where to go. He tells him, walk. Why? Because when you're healed and you set free, you don't keep on lying as on the mat as though you're sick. You, you walk, you run, you dance. It's like when Jesus says to me, you and me, you're forgiven. My beloved child, you're forgiven. What's been done to you has been washed clean. What you've done has been washed clean. And yet how many of us struggle with feeling guilty or ashamed when we mess up? 
You're going to feel that way for a moment, but don't you dare stay there. Walk. Walk in the truth of who you are. My family of origin was set free from a lot of dysfunction. The, the power of addiction was broken. The power of codependence was broken. The, the power of, of Satan's grip on my family was broken when my, when my mom, at the age of 22, gave her life to Jesus. She was filled with the Holy Spirit. My aunt had led my mom to Christ, and then my aunt led everybody else in my family to Christ. Jesus claimed my family for his kingdom. But what most of my family did when they were set free from prison is that then they started camping outside the prison walls because it was familiar. Is that you? Is that your family? You still use the old tools of dysfunction even though you don't need to be afraid, even though you don't need to manipulate, even though you don't need to lie, you don't need to pretend. You don't need to live in shame or fear or bitterness. You don't need to constantly confront or be angry all the time. You don't need to act as if you're alone. You can live in the freedom that God has given you. Stand up. Pick up your mat. Walk. Verse 9. Wait, wait. You've got to say it with some energy. You ready? Instantly, the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. It's like, I'm healed. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So immediately John is then zooming out and going, oh, trouble's coming. <laughs> so this guy's running around. This guy's walking around. He's like, I'm moved. Yep, that's right. I was, he, I was paralyzed 38 years. I don't live there anymore. Check it out. Hey, aren't you that guy at the pool? Yep, that was me. Not anymore. I'm walking. And then all of a sudden, I mean, like, everybody's knowing. Like, everybody's like, hey, you're like Gary Wheelchair Wally, aren't you? Like, Invalid Ivan, you're... You're lame Larry, but you're not like, what's going on? Like, what happened? You look fabulous. I mean, you need a shower. You need some new clothes, but you look amazing. Well, it's, oh, man, this guy healed me. It's great. It's wonderful. He's carrying his mat around. And then all of the, all of the pastors, all of the, the Pharisees, they said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath because he's carrying his, he's moving, right? Moving day landed on the Sabbath. And that wasn't okay. The law doesn't allow you to carry your sleeping bag. Hmm. Verse 11. But he replied, well, the man who healed me told me, pick up your mat and walk. It's kind of an interesting response. He's like, why didn't he just go, like, kind of a little bit throwing Jesus under the bus, like, he has a little bit of resistance, and he's kind of melting. He's like, I don't know what to do with this. And then, and then the Pharisees, they smell blood in the water. Well, who said such a thing as that, they demanded. The man didn't know. I don't know, I don't know who this guy is. For Jesus, whoosh, it disappeared into the crowd. Like the pastors didn't ask, 
Who healed you? We need to celebrate. They weren't looking to praise God. They were, they were looking for a problem. They were looking for a problem. Is that you? Is that you? God answers a prayer. And you're on to the next problem. God, I need a job. God gives you a job. Ugh, now I got to go to work. <laughs> Lord Jesus, please give me a family. Ugh, these kids. Lord Jesus, I want to spend my life with someone. Ugh, I can't believe I'm married. <laughs> Is that you? You know that a symptom of a dead heart is that you can't stay in the moment, in the miracle, in the blessing, in the provision. You're constantly moving on to the next problem as a way of complaining or proving that you think that God isn't going to take care of you. A sign of an alive heart, a heart filled with the Spirit, a heart that has been shaped by Jesus is a heart that is willing, that take, that that chooses to stay in the moment of the blessing. Say, God, thank you. You've done it. Thank you for the sun. Thank you for the warmth. Thank you that I live here on the Central Coast. Some of you might be noticing right now that it's, that it's warm in the sanctuary, right? Stay in the moment. You're not in Bakersfield anymore. <laughs> stay in the moment, right? Stay in the moment. You're not at the Baptist church anymore. Stay at the moment, right? Amen. I, I, I'm not a jerk anymore. Stay, stay in the moment, right? The person sitting next to you is getting better. Stay in the moment. Stay in the moment. Stay in the blessing. Verse 14. But afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and told him, read with me, slowly, see... You are well, so stop sinning or something even worse may happen to you. Jesus has said two things, and I don't like any of them. We already figured out that the first question, do you want to be well, isn't rude. So how do we understand this? Later in chapter 9, Jesus is actually going to heal a man who was blind and is the Pharisees are saying, well, he's blind because his parents sinned. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Look, the consequences of sin are, are more than enough punishment. God never punishes you because of your sin by cursing you with some sort of physical ailment. What you're going through right now, your current diagnosis, your current struggles, not because you've sinned. God's not punishing you. That's not how God works. So why in the world is Jesus saying this? Now, I've read every commentary on the book of John in this passage, and none of them say the theory I'm about to tell you. So I'm fully aware that I might be going completely off the rails here. So this could be where I drive the bus full into mythology and my imagination. But here's my theory. Okay, will you stay with me? Here's my theory. I think Jesus says the word, wait, wait, back. That's not Jesus. <laughs> I think Jesus says the word see for a reason. Jesus is actually looking at the guy. Here's my theory. 
I think when the Pharisees told the guy to stop carrying his mat, the guy, being a good Jew, decided that he wouldn't sin on the Sabbath, and so he laid his mat down. Now, he was in the temple area at this point because he'd been running. He'd always wanted to go to the temple. He hadn't been there in 38 years. So he's going to church. It's the, it's the Sabbath. Church is happening on the Sabbath. He's never been to church in 38 years. He's been stuck in the pool of Bethesda. So he goes up to church. That's the temple. And they say, put down your mat. And then, well, then he sits down on his mat. And how does he look? He looks like a beggar. And everybody who's been passing him for the last 38 years thinks that somebody just dragged him to a new spot. And so before you know it, people are giving him money. But this time, the traffic is much higher in the temple, and he's having a banner day. And now he's laying on his mat. And Jesus goes to the temple, and he looks at him, and he goes, Look, you are hikes. You're well. Your legs are healed. The third definition of hygies is that you would not deviate from the truth. And Jesus uses that meaning here, I think, where he's saying, look, why are you pretending like you're crippled again? Stop sinning. That's the only possible sin I can think of, is that this guy is on the ground going backwards, pretending like he's sick again. Because if God does a miracle in your life, God sets you free, and then you go back to living like you're a slave, that's a sickness in your soul, which is much harder to recover from. There was a, a pastor in Australia. His name was Michael. He was leading this huge church. He was getting more and more sick, vomiting, nausea. His hair started falling out. He thought he was dying. He wrote this hit song that was featured on Hillsong called The Healer. Here, here's Michael. You can see he's playing in front of 300,000 people. He's got oxygen tubes. He's, he's been diagnosed as terminal. He's like, he's going to die. He's playing healing, The Healer, and it's number four on charts nationally across the world. Millions of dollars are pouring in to give Michael healing and to, to give him all the resources he needs to get to the doctor's office. But, but you can kind of tell that Michael looks like kind of a healthy guy for someone who's terminal. And the thing about Michael is that he didn't get worse and worse. He's, he just didn't die. So his family, his wife, eventually they call the doctors. They're trying to get more information when is surgery scheduled. And the doctors tell them, Michael doesn't have terminal cancer. What are you talking about? And it is revealed that the reason why Michael was sick, the reason why he was vomiting, the reason why his hair was falling out is because he was living a double life. He's trying to lead a church, and at the exact same time, he's addicted to pornography. And instead of actually dealing with the hell that he was living in, he decided to make up that he was sick, and he lost everything. Everything. That's what it means when Jesus is saying to this not paralyzed man, stop sinning or something worse can happen. 
Look, Jesus is speaking to this not paralyzed man and he's saying, you're healed, you're whole. And if you pretend to be crippled again, there's no coming back from that black hole. So stand up, take up your mat, walk. You've been set free from prison. Now don't camp outside the prison walls. Stand up, walk, go. Now, I don't foresee anybody here writing a hit number one song on the Christian albums and while you're pretending to have cancer. So you can, maybe you're saying, well, what does this have to do with me? And I don't see anyone here pretending to be in a wheelchair and they're actually fine. So you might be thinking, what in the world does this sermon have to do with me? Well, right after Jesus finds this not paralyzed guy in the temple, the guy actually stands up and goes to and tells the Pharisee that it was Jesus who broke the Sabbath by healing him, and therefore officially throws Jesus under the bus. Jesus is now on the radars of the Jews, the religious leaders in Jerusalem, and that causes a lot of ten tension and conflict. Same day, they're having a conversation together, and Jesus is trying to communicate, look, I only do what the Heavenly Father is doing, a healing, how the Heavenly Father heals, I'm loving how he loves. And Jesus tells the Pharisees this on the very same day. He says this, for just as the Father gives life to those he raises from the dead, so the Son gives life to anyone he wants. In addition, the Father judges... Read with me. Are you kidding? The image that you have of your Heavenly Father being a judge is wrong. Instead, read with me, he has given the Son absolute authority to judge. Who is the judge? Who is the judge? Every moment in Scripture when God is judging someone, it's Jesus. Jesus is the judge. Jesus judges the royal official. The royal official in chapter 4 is trying to boss Jesus around, force him to do a miracle. Jesus says, nope, I'm the judge. So I'm going to heal your son, but I'm also going to do it my way so that you might be healed. And the dad realizes this. Read with me. Next slide, John. I thought my way was the best way, but then I discovered Jesus' way is the only way to a miracle for my son and for my own heart. Jesus is the way. See, when Jesus is the judge, it works out better. Amen? So then Jesus encounters this paralyzed man. He heals him, but not in the way the man expects. Jesus doesn't respond to his long, sad tale of woe. Instead, because Jesus is the judge, he commands the guy, stand up, move, leave this place, leave this life, leave this identity, walk. But what is this guy's response, this not paralyzed man's response? He says, well, I kind of know how to be a beggar, so I'm going to stay one. The not paralyzed man thought he was in charge. The miracles and his transformation only happened when he was walking, trusting, having the faith that Jesus was in charge. But then the not paralyzed man insisted on being in charge. Has it worked out for you? And at the heart of both of these stories is one theme. Who gets to be the judge? It's not Matt Guerrero. 
He's a judge, but it's not him. Who gets to be the judge? Who get, good? Yes, Wendy. Jesus gets to be the judge because the moment I'm the judge, then I become like the Pharisees and I point out all the problems with life and other people. The moment I want to be the judge, I will become like the not paralyzed man. I'll decide that it's better for me to go back to my old ways because I can't figure out how to live in freedom. The moment that I decide to be my own judge, I will decide that if God doesn't answer my prayer right away, if God doesn't take away my, my feelings right away, if God doesn't pacify me right away, if God doesn't answer my prayers when I want, how I want, that I will judge that God is lousy at being a judge and I will take over. And every time that you and I do that, we take a hold of our steering wheel and all of a sudden we're driving off of a cliff. And what we forget is the power of the gospel. What kind of judge is Jesus? Jesus is the judge that judges the thing in you that's killing you. He's the kind of judges that, that removes from you the poison by absorbing it himself until it kills him. Jesus is the kind of judge that joins you right where you are. So can I have us end with a dangerous prayer? It goes like this. Jesus is never just working on my behalf to meet a one need. Jesus is working to work in me, a healing, a transformation, a hope, and a purpose that will change the course of generations. Today I will wait with him. Today I will listen and trust his judgments and directions. Today I will trust God's love for me and God's plan for my best. Will you pray that with me? Jesus is never just working on my behalf to meet one need. Jesus is working to work in me a healing, a transformation, a hope, and a purpose that will change the course of generations. Today I will wait with him. Today, I will listen and trust his judgments and directions. Today, I will trust God's love for me and God's plan for my best. Oh, Lord Jesus, bless and seal the good news, the power of the gospel, these prayers, the truth that you've spoken into the hearts of my brothers and sisters. We surrender all to you. We surrender all to you. You're the best judge, Jesus. Brothers and sisters, hear the good news, the benediction. Now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance, that's his delight in you, and give you the peace that passes all understanding. He knows what you need, and he's working to work in you a transformation that will change generations. You can trust him this day.